Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Ponte from our 2018 programme. The Singaporean writer Charlene Teo's debut novel Ponte won the inaugural Deborah Rogers Foundation Writers' Award and was praised by Ian McEwan for its brilliant descriptive power and for characters which glow with life and humour and minutely observed desperation. Tio sets her twisting and haunting story of an intense and unusual friendship between two women against the humming, shifting atmosphere of contemporary Singapore. She speaks with Roosevelt Tan about her breakthrough debut in a session supported by the National Arts Council of Singapore. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Charlene Tio. Thank you. So good to have you here. Thank you. Um, the structure of this um, session is um, Charlene's come up with this fantastic idea where we are going to have three short readings. Um, Ponce is a book that is told from a few different times and in a few different ways. So we thought that to give you the best taste of the book, we would just do these little short readings, um, three of them throughout the program. Um, so we'll be doing that and then I'll ask some questions and we're hoping that there will be time at the end um, for questions from the audience, at which time there'll be a roving mic. I'm just gonna check and make sure I've done everything I should have done. Yeah, that looks like it. I love this room. It's amazing, eh? Is my mic on? I think I'm going deaf. Oh, no, I can hear myself. It's <laughs> good. I love this room. It's really nice. I like yeah. the um, little sprouty bit. I feel like we're in a circus or something. Yeah. And we, and we were just saying how we arrived to the um, tones of the bell, and it felt like yeah. we were just... Yeah, it was like a magical show. Oh, gosh, yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, so, so I, I guess I'm going to start with a short reading. So I thought maybe that um, three short readings would be kind of nice, like a little taster, many, like a snack. Um, <laughs> also, like, the shorter, the kind of better sometimes. So <laughs> I'm just going to start. Um, this is from near the beginning of the book, um, and it's narrated by a 16-year-old teenager named Sue. Singapore lies just one degree north of the equator, and it feels like the bullseye where the sun is aiming a shot at the earth with the intention of killing it. In the afternoons, this building heats up like a copper coil stove. The classroom is so sweltering that all 33 of us sweat out half our body weight a form of suffering which the girls most committed to their eating disorders view as beneficial and beautifying. The cooked classroom smells like impulse deodorant and soiled sanitary pads. The perspiration makes our starched button blouses turn translucent as onion peel and stick to the skin. Lurid bra straps and push-up cup lines emerge like litmus blooming through filter paper. Neon pink, acid green, boudoir red, unorthodox colors for our prim and proper all-girls school. My own bra is always beige. As I walk out of the yellow school gates, my palms ache and my legs are heavy with the weight of my birthday. How is it possible that anyone could celebrate this, throw a party where people look at them, giving a thumbs up as they crookedly cut a cake? How could anyone actually enjoy being one year closer to a bad back, to sleeplessness, to gums drawing away from yellowed canines? Even with the bait of wisdom, old age still depresses me. I dread the day when my mouth is formed into a life-formed snarl and I can no longer keep up with shitty pop music. My bus arrives with a hiss. As I get on, I think, how about this for a change? If every year, instead of wearing out and scarring the same awkward skin, I could wake up with a fresh one, shed my tall self like a snake. It would be the best present. I wish I could go away and become someone else again and again, but I have at least two more years of necessary education and it is only Tuesday. 
Thank you. One of the really, um, one of my favourite things about this book is that it really captures the diversity of Singapore, the diversity of experience in Singapore. And I guess I'm interested in possibly some context around why Singapore was the right place to set this story. Yeah, um, well, basically I grew up in Singapore. I spent the first 19 years of my life there. And then after that, I moved to the UK um, for university. So I went there for, I did a law degree and did the law thing for a little bit. Um, and then I kind of just stayed, so I live in London now. But I do get asked why I return to Singapore in my fiction, and I think um, for diasporic writers, you know, this is a constant sort of struggle and a question that comes up, um, both in terms of the sort of creative impulse and also just a kind of why. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel that to me, Singapore is where I developed my emotional consciousness, like who I am as a person, you know, that's very much embedded in childhood. And these kinds of sensory impressions that you get as a small person moving through the world. So I would say in, in the UK in London is where I developed my adult sort of sentimental education. So like the kind of hardened, awkward human that I am today. <laughs> but that's past the age of 20. Um, so I find that actually the earlier part of my life up to sort of 19 is where I kind of feel the most sort of emotional affinity. And I think that I, I write from a place of emotion. So the Singapore in, in this book, or I feel like in, in my writing, is not at all sort of a touristic kind of, you know, literary tourism, like, this place is like that, and, you know, here's what we eat and stuff like that. I mean, even though food plays a huge part of it, but I'm very much more interested in the kind of sensory, emotional atmosphere of a place. Like how, you know, Auckland has a particular atmosphere to me, like on a very sort of sensory level. Mm. Yeah, so... That's, yeah, that's why. That sounds, that's great. I, I wonder, like, because sense is extremely important in this book, you know, like, it, um, there is, there are horror elements in the book, you know, and I think that that heightened sense is kind of interesting. Could you talk a little bit about perhaps the genesis of the book and the, and the Pontiac maybe as a, oh, yeah. you know, as a, as a sure, you know, yeah. figure? Um, well, basically, Ponty is, um, a short form for a Pontianat, so that's a Southeast Asian um, kind of mythical cannibalistic entity um, that in its earliest sort of stories, like we were told as children, it, um, she manifests herself as this um, kind of hot woman, like just with really <laughs> like dark kind of greasy hair, wearing a kind of off-white, you know, sexy but kind of modest <laughs> dress, who basically wanders around um, like dirt roads late at night and um, began as a kind of um, oral tradition for wives to warn their husbands off kind of, you know, <laughs> talking to these young women alone at night. And I loved, obviously she's a monster, and um, the, the root of that is uh, basically um, um, mothers who kind of died in, in childbirth and they weren't given proper burials. So I always found the kind of gender dimensions of that myth very, very fascinating, like, and also kind of radical, because you're saying that this, this young woman Mm. Instead of being the kind of prey, she's, she's kind of predatory and, and um, a kind of fearful figure. So, so the genesis of the novel was I was very interested in writing something um, that explored that, you know, around our kind of um, fascinations with um, the monstrous feminine and also the underlying kind of fear behind that myth, like that this is someone intruding the domestic space, you know, kind of coming in and, you know, eating men, <laughs> which is terrifying on, on so many levels. Um, but 
to, to those of you who are unfamiliar with the book, it, it actually doesn't contain a real Pontianak. It's basically about um, an actress who acts as a, as a Pontianak in a, in a trilogy of, of horror movies. Um, so, yeah, that basically I wanted to kind of marry that idea of the myths and, mm -hmm. and the kind of Southeast Asian superstitions that are very, very much embedded in the fabric of everyday life um, with my other fascination, which is um, um, B horror movies and, and filmmaking. So um, in Singaporean film history, there's a, a, a lacuna um, from the 70s to the 90s, because the 50s and 60s were the kind of golden era where the studios were making films, including Pontianak films. And then in the 70s, um, people got TV sets, so it was less popular. Local films, um, people got into like blockbusters imported from Hollywood, so like things like Jaws and Star Wars and stuff. So all the studios went out of business, and I thought, what if someone wanted to make a, a trilogy of films that were about this really outdated monster, um, and, and they got made, but I, I just never heard of them because they faded into obscurity. So that's kind of the, the genesis of the book. Mm. Yeah. Can we go back to this idea of the monstrous feminine? Um, I'm just thinking that the characters are, um, in parts of the book, the characters are um, you know, very contemporary and, um, and al almost, into the, well, into the future as well. And then we have, um, I'm just, what I'm interested in is this idea that a lot of the women, I guess, you, you could pinpoint as monstrous because they don't quite fit with the ideal feminine. And I wonder, would you be interested in talking a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's very interesting, like the older I get, the more I realize how um, my own perceptions and biases have been encoded in me on an almost subliminal level like I think that we we don't understand we don't kind of realize a lot of the time that we we grow up with a lot of subconscious biases, and I think a lot of that is um, I'm very fascinated, for example, in you know like true crime cases. Mm. Um, you know, if a if a child goes, I mean, this is very dark. I'm sorry, it's, it's Sunday. No, <laughs> Sunday I'm, day. We'll talk about something <laughs> nice, and but I mean, okay, say if if like someone goes missing, right? I feel that the, the media, the, the public outcry is always directed toward the mother. They're always like, the mother failed, you know, the mother did something. Mm. And I, I feel that this carries through across different countries and across different sort of news stories. So I think the way how we read women, particularly women in the public eye, is incredibly sort of gendered and highly specific. So um, to, to go back to your question, the idea of the monstrous feminine, how we, how we read women, what is monstrous, um, I'm, very, I'm very interested in that. And also in terms of depictions in fiction of Asian women, there's a certain kind of ideal of Asian femininity, like how, how people would perceive like, Asian women to behave, like you know, they're kind of certain sort of quite, you know, certain ideas of like, you know, say, being demure or gentle or whatever. So I, I feel like the, the women in my book, they're, they're Singaporean women, they are not docile, they are not very maternal at all, um, they're messy, they're quite scatological, you know, they fart and they you know, <laughs> curse and, you know, all manners of things. Um, so I kind of wanted to, yeah, like kind of depict that, like these characters in, in their kind of full embodiment as well, like as characters that, you know, curse and pee and, you know, <laughs> eat. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. The worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's awesome. Um, can I go back to something? I'm really, you, um, there is the most wonderful um, profile of Charlene um, in The Guardian. And in The Guardian, you talk about this idea of predestined failure in relation to the book. Would you be interested in talking a bit about how that relates to the book? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's um, the idea of 
I'm fascinated by filmmaking as a process because it's so collaborative. Mm. You can't, I mean, unlike writing a book, you can't say, like, I'm going to go to the shed and make a film because mm. you need at least a buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea of, like, a whole film crew assembling to make a film about this monster, like a Pontianic, that was so out of fashion by the time the films come out. So, you know, it was kind of dead in the water. It was doomed to fail because it's not the trend. It's not, it's not the trend in, you know, popular consciousness and culture and... Um, because film, filmmaking is so, so reliant on kind of viewership and reception, mm. you know, so, so the Amisa character, the actress, she, she enters into something that is predestined to fail. And, and I really, I'm really quite absorbed by that idea. Yeah, it's a yeah. beautiful idea when you think about it in terms of art as well. Um, I was wondering a little bit about um, the process of writing this book. Like, the, the book kind of, what, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I'm interested in the idea that you were away from the place you were writing about. Yeah. Do you think that was a necessity, or I, do you think it was good, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was just in Singapore last week uh, doing stuff for the book, and I, when I'm at home, I, I become this, like, weird, lazy child. I just basically, <laughs> I, I eat so many prawns, because I just absolutely <laughs> love, like, my favorite Singaporean food is like this thing called prawn, prawn mee, which is essentially this giant bowl like with all the essence of like 20 prawns in the soup and, and then prawns sticking out. <laughs> just a lot of prawns. But I just, I've just become quite like childlike. So I kind of hang out with my parents all the time. And I, 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 I'm just not very sharp. It's very hard and I just can't think straight. I find it quite hard to be productive, mainly because I've developed this routine of going back over the holidays. So mm. I associate it with pleasure and you know pure relaxation so in a way i do need that removal to write about it with any sort of clarity and any sort of perceptiveness mm. yeah awesome awesome would you like to read that second section oh yeah, yeah. is that okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. because we've been talking about film and it would be great to sure it's like a storytelling pen <laughs> um so this 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 section is narrated by amisa the actress um well it's not narrated by her but it centers on her and the Amisa sections, I would add, are, are um, told in third person. In the late afternoons and some evenings, Amisa worked in the Paradise Theatre, a small cinema at the junction of Jalan Ubi and Everett Road. It had only two screens, one that showed Hindi and Chinese films, and another that showed second-run Hollywood movies. Some days, she cleaned the toilets, and other times she ushered and sat on a hardbacked chair at the back of the theatre. In front of her unfolded a screen the size of a small world whirring countdown, ten beeping numbers, and the final fidgets before the long darkened room became as hushed and vast as the bottom of the sea. Peace at short last. It was a whole way of being, and for her, it felt completely free. She loved the kung fu movies with their mind-boggling choreography and mulleted young men who never tired, or the Hindi musicals with their fluttering romance, lush, intriguing girls, and stirring scores that surged in and out of bass and bongo beats. Saris swished vivid color across the screen, every frame pulsing with life that was so much better than life. She even adored Jaws with its stupid-looking shark and the choppy threat of American waters. Hollywood seemed incredibly unreal, everyone so blonde, buttery, strong-thighed, and somehow cruder. She could have watched films all day, and even without the visuals, the sounds themselves were calming, nothing but the soft puttering of the film reel through the projector, the rustle of snacks, and the labored breathing of an audience either aroused or half asleep. She could live right here behind them, dwell always in this darkened kingdom of muffled dialogue, muffled intrigue, and she felt a rare kinship, 
a shared humanity with the silhouetted heads tilted upward, chewing kacang puteh or watermelon seeds. Thank you. Um, there have been several Pontianat movies, yeah. and your, but your movie is an imagined version of that. And I just wonder, were they on your mind? Like, what's it like writing sort of side by side in the imaginary when there's already a, oh, some, you know, like, yeah. well, what's that like? I mean, I absolutely love expresses. You know, like, when, when someone writes about a, a work, another kind of form of medium in, in a book, particularly, and I love, like, made up reading about made-up films or made-up kind of <laughs> ballets or whatever in other people's work. But I watched, um, I watched clips of the, the Pontianak films, and I also um, was very, very much influenced by this um, film by a director called Peter Strickland that came out in 2011. It's called Barbarian Sound Studio, mm. and it's incredibly kind of David Lynchy, and it's about a sound technician um, who, 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 who goes to Italy to work on these um, kind of Italian horror films, and he, he makes the effects. And it's it was just so evocative and moody and also terrifying, but there was a very, very gritty sort of reality grounded in it. You know, the fact that um, in order to evoke kind of terror or, you know, supernatural effects, there's a whole kind of crew of people, you know, they're rattling a, rattling coffee beans on a rain drum or they're kind of holding up a sheet. And I, I love that kind of DIY aesthetic. <laughs> um, so I just wanted very much to kind of depict that in, in the book. So I, I, I picture the films very distinctly. They're kind of ridiculous as well. So um, like Troll 2, there's this film like so bad it's good. <laughs> um, like the acting is just so, so terrible that it's quite unbelievable but also fascinating. So I, yeah, I was, I was thinking of all those things. That sounds awesome. Like, and, and the the pop culture sits quite heavily, pop culture, whatever that means, but like um, culture sits quite heavily in here. There's often a move to music, you know, and yeah. music sits on people as um, perhaps a, a signifier of, you know, their coolness and that sort of thing. What was that like, writing those sorts of place bits? Well, I mean, I think that I just had to kind of cast my memory back to being a teenager. And, mm. and I think that um, adolescence is such a kind of interesting, sort of fertile period in a way, because you're kind of gesturing toward who you'll eventually become. And you're kind of constantly in this state of becoming, like wanting to become. Like There's this, there's this sense of stasis, but everything is changing all at the same time. And the, the kind of intensity of emotion that you feel at that age is just so wonderful. And we, we spend our whole adulthood you know, casting back to it and trying to kind of you know, resuscitate those feelings and the kind of passion and fanaticism that you feel towards things, the loyalty towards like bands, toward movies, because you're just forming allegiances that are indicators of your, your personality, basically. Mm. Um, so there are two, two girls in the book, um, Sue and Cersei, and they attend this very prim and proper all-girls school where they have no friends beside each other. And they, they form this kind of uneasy but, you know, tender kind of alliance where they rely on each other, but they're also constantly in competition. Cersei in particular is, is a bit of a poser, so she always wants to be kind of cool, you know, quote unquote. So she pretends that she really enjoys uh, music from like 60s bands, like <laughs> things that, you know, have a bit more credibility. So she pretends to enjoy like, you know, Goddard films and tries to make them watch, you know, Kurosawa and stuff, but secretly she's just a huge Britney fan. <laughs> I mean, who isn't? So <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was very true to the kind of um, experience of 
being that age and also um, true to how people like try to put on or they, they kind of label themselves as, oh, you know, I'm more of a classical music fan myself, <laughs> you know, and you're kind of like, okay, I see, you know, or people are like, I'm a connoisseur of whiskey. You're like, okay, good, good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we return to Cersei later, um, yeah. you know, as an as a older person. And that must have been fun to imagine, like, that span of life. Like, yeah. Was, yeah, like, and, and you're imagining into the future as well. The near future. So the, the weird thing is I wrote this, I started writing this book in 2014. <gasps> it's four years ago. <laughs> yeah, but, and it finished it, the first draft in 2016, and in 2014, I was like, 2020 is ages away, but there'll be hovercrafts then, you know, who knows? <laughs> and it's really just right around the corner, and Cersei's slightly older than me and um, undergoing a divorce um, in, the, in the book, and I've had people ask me if I, I'd gone through a divorce, <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> but it, it was, I, I think it was the most fun to write her. She's a very caustic character. She's, she's very... Um, I think she's kind of repressed, and she she often puts up fronts. So she's she's quite um she's quite cynical and sarcastic, but um she's not very forthcoming with her actual sort of feelings. So it was fun to kind of get into that mode. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is great about her is that you imagine her into a space where um she works in this very sort of youth orientated job, but she's hitting a space where she almost isn't quite sort of getting it anymore. And I just yeah. think it's so well imagined in the book. Well, thank you. No, I, I think it's this very interesting sort of turn in, in like pop cultural consciousness as, as an individual when pop stars, I mean, I, I think the turn happens when, when you're about really young, like 21, when you realize that pop stars are like younger than you. And there's that weird shift because I remember being a child and everyone being like, mm. they felt mm. way older than me. Like I would be like, wow, someone's 18. They're so old, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So this kind of na naive, like quite, it's quite quite lovely. But I mean, I, I I think the book is also very preoccupied with aging and how we kind of shift our perceptions and our self-image over time. Mm, mm. And I think that's what's really interesting about the movie is that. Amisa is kind of caught in a moment in time. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and I think that's what's interesting about film is that it can sort of capture it. Eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the, the, the face on film is something that's very arresting. And uh, you know, if you watch old movies, it's, it's this kind of memento mori. If you, if you see something from the 40s, like everyone is, you know, everyone on there is, you know, they, 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 you know they, they're not the same or mm -hmm. they're not here mm -hmm. or. I feel the saddest when I watch films with, with animals in them because I'm like, you're definitely not here, and that makes <laughs> me very, very sad. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's something very arresting and, and like haunting about the face on the film um, over time. So yeah, Misa has these films as a constant relic of like, you know, the, the pinnacle of her career, which was non-existent, and the pinnacle of her kind of physical beauty because she has a great sort of power, particularly mm -hmm. over men. But that that beauty also kind of isolates her because she, she finds it hard to relate to most other women. Mm, yeah. yeah. With this idea of cinema and, and fame and the face, um, I'm interested in, well, for, I'm interested in how you consume cinema now. Oh. I, like, is it, do you, do you go to the cinema to watch? Yeah, 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 I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of, of films. I, I, I love going to the cinema. I love watching pl um, plain films and crying. <laughs> um, I just watched Moana on the way. Oh, yeah. It's really good. Highly yeah. recommend it. Yeah. Great, great like narrative arc as well. I mean, mm. I watch everything for bearing story in mind. So even if it's 
a, a blockbuster film. You know, there's a whole sort of trajectory, mm -hmm. and it's very interesting looking at it from a narrative perspective. Even things that I feel are unsuccessful are interesting, and there's always something that you can draw from that in, in one way or another. And I think that um, the aesthetics of film very much influence how I write. I think I write quite like visually or like you know, but I, I never really imagine a character with a face. Mm. Does that make sense? I, I I can't imagine them having a face, but I can imagine like you know, say how a how a room would look. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting. Why do you think you don't make films? Why don't I? Yeah, I'm not a filmmaker. <laughs> Why do you think you're not a filmmaker, maybe? I, I just, I, I've, I don't know, writing's always been my thing. I've always wanted to be a writer. I, I've always just loved writing. I, I write journals as well. I just feel that I articulate myself a lot better in a written form than, like, verbally. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think, I, I think I, it helps to clarify things for me. So that's just my medium. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And when did you first sort of, um, like, were you someone who wrote as a child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I wrote... I wrote and used to draw, draw like the illustrate my own stories as well. Cool. Yeah. Do you still do that? No, no. Oh, but I had a so I had a cool. fake newspaper that I I was the editor and contributor and everything, <laughs> illustrator, picture editor. It was called the Froggy Times, and I made it on this like kind of weird software, and I, I printed it out and I made five copies five copies, because they're five members of my family. <laughs> Everyone had to have one, and like, yeah, my sister just made fun of me, and like, she was like, this is, this is the worst, but like, she, she secretly loved it. <laughs> when does, um, I'm always interested in this question, I know it gets asked a lot in weeks like this, but when did you first start to realize that writing was something that could be done, not the froggy time, you know, <laughs> like it could be something that, you, when did you sort of first take yourself seriously as a writer, I guess? Well, I think like I, I'm, I'm still in that process, mm, like all yeah. the time. I, I, I feel that once you take yourself too seriously, then you'll never <laughs> like, you'll never learn anymore. And you'll just sit there like kind of couched in one smugness. Like, you know, <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm, I'm still learning. Um, I, I guess for me, it was when I, I um, got, got this opportunity to do a, an MA at um, the University of East Anglia. Um, it's basically like, um, quite a quite a remarkable story because I was um, I was working in publishing before like business publishing so I, I worked I did the directories to the London Book Fair so I called every single publisher in the world I'm pretty sure like Auckland Auckland publishers like whoever participates in the book fair I rang them and really really annoyed them because <laughs> um, it was just basically trying to get people to participate in the directory mm. it was a very dry boring job. Um, but I left that and um, I, I applied I applied for this MA and um, I actually couldn't afford I couldn't afford it, but um, they, they, they were really like great, and they, they gave me like a, a scholarship. So from then on, they've been really, really kind and really supportive of me and my work, and I, I feel that that's played a, a tremendous part in my development as a writer, mm. and I would never kind of distance myself from, from the kind of debt of gratitude. I, I really do feel like they, they were really supportive, um, but I don't think that everyone needs to, to go um, and do an MA um, in creative writing. I think that everybody has their own sort of path and, you know, yeah, mm, that's so true. And do you, I, I did hear you, I'm cheating because I heard you say this somewhere before, just this idea of sort of finding voice. Like, um, did you start writing in that MA the way that you finished? Or was there a point where you thought, ah, oh, this well, is what I sound like? I, I started, um, I did an MA when I was about, I think it was in my early 20s. I, I'm not sure anymore. Um, but I was, I was a little bit, complacent, because I, I, I had this idea that, oh yeah, you know, I can just write when I feel inspired. 
<laughs> so I just, I just had these like kind of flash fiction pieces that I wrote throughout my degree that were a little bit complacent, I think. I, I wasn't really kind of applying myself and really re getting to that position of like pure helplessness and desperation from, from which I think I write the most productively from. <laughs> like, I just feel like I'm like writing constantly, like I'm just like running like away from a fire and I'm like, ah, I know nothing, I know nothing, I'm, I'm the worst. And I have some days when I wake up and I'm like, this, this is all terrible. And I just write some real clunkers of dialogue. But I think the thing I'm learning through practice is that everything is, everything, everything goes toward the book. Everything is research, like life is research, loss is research, everything is research, and that's like wonderful. Like even even the terrible writing, it, you know, it helps. Mm. I don't know, I love writing something so terrible that I'm just so glad no one will ever see it. <laughs> so great. <laughs> it's yeah. a wonderful feeling. I really like that feeling too. Do you want to do the final reading? Oh, yeah. I think we're going to move to. Um, okay. We're moving towards the end of the book. Yeah, this is this is yeah, but it's not not a spoiler. Um, so this is. <laughs> This is narrated by Sue, so you met her earlier when she was 16, and now she's about 33 years old, so this is toward the end of the book. I've started part-time filmmaking classes, Wednesday evenings from 7 to 10 p.m. It's a foundation course. This week for homework, we have to do some basic editing. Perhaps because the remake is coming out soon, or because I'm a masochist, I've picked footage from the original Ponty. I have it in front of me, digitized, scrubbed to clarity. I'm fixated on one particular sequence that comes from 20 minutes into the film. We open with a shot of a grotesque banyan tree, its limb-like aerial prop roots and obscuring vines. Stillness, one beat of shadow, leaves stir. And then the monstrous human thing that is my mother begins to emerge. First her thin white hands, and then her bloodied, beautiful face followed by the rest of her, an elegant attack of white dress and scarred legs. I'm obsessed with this moment. I keep looping it back and re-watching, as if she'll grant me answers after a thousand repetitions. Amisa, Ponti, Xiaofang, hides from and reveals herself to me over and over in the hypnotic shifting of frames. Her moonbeam skin comes into focus before disappearing into the darkness again. The hope in her face breaks my heart. Rewind, the hate in her face breaks my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so in the book, there's this interesting relationship that Sue has where there's the real mother, the Amisa is her mother and she's the real mother, but then Sue's very aware of her mother as the actress in Ponzi and her mother the monster. And um, uses it a little bit to sort of build herself up around these people who are just don't get her. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe the mother-daughter relationship in the yeah, book? Yeah, I mean, I think that mother-daughter dynamics are so kind of like, they're, they're, they're very charged and, and very, very complex and fraught um, you know, a lot of the time. Um, and they're, they're not without these different layers of kind of expectation, projection, um, you know, like, people projecting you know, each other's conceptions of success and failure on each other, or in the case of Anissa and Sue, like the, the really beautiful mother being frankly and horrifically disappointed that her daughter is not like, you know, as gorgeous as her. It's something as shallow and cruel as that. Um, and I, I, wanted, I was very interested in the idea of um, grieving, like unresolved grieving. So the mother is, is very ill, like not spoiling it. <laughs> At the beginning of the book, she's already pretty ill. Mm. So this, this girl is 16 and she, she, you know, she can't even manage her own feelings with any kind of 
proper sort of vocabulary quite yet to herself. She's so unsure of everything. So to, to add on to the pressure of that, you know, her mother is, is essentially, you know, really, really dying. And, and you know, she, she has to kind of struggle with all the kind of anger and unresolved, you know, guilt and shame that she feels, you know, even just for being herself, like, because she's never felt kind of seen or appreciated by, by her mother. Um, so I was very, very interested in, in that dynamic, but also, you know, you know, dropping the reader in like that and having the reader think like, wow, you know, this, this woman is really terrible to her daughter, but then hopefully by the end of the book, mm. um, coming to understand her a little bit more. So there's not necessarily a clean redemption because life is not like that. You know, we don't always get a chance to, to say all the things we need to say. You don't have that clarifying kind of denouement where, you know, people like, like hug and there's a halo of light and like some nice music plays. You know, it, it doesn't happen like that, does it? So, yeah, I was interested in the, the messiness of, of life and, yeah. Because it is such an interesting household that um, Sue is in as well. You know, like there are a lot of there. Well, there are more. There are two. There are three women in the house, but yeah. not nobody's really taking on that role of mother, right? No, I mean, I, I don't think that she grows up with any sort of maternal or paternal figures to speak of, and that that really has a bearing on her um, self-esteem. And and you know, she really struggles socially at school. So like, she has no friends, but. She, she's such a like kind of pariah that the, the people don't even bother to bully her. They just kind of just like, <laughs> you know, which, which is, I think, even worse. There's nothing worse, I think, than being ignored. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's what I thought, that was just so marvelous about the book is the fact that um, I want to be friends with her. Like, I'm thinking how many amazing people did I miss, although I was usually the one that people didn't want to hang out with, but, you know, like, how many people did I miss out on hanging out with with these amazing things going on? It's just incredible. Um, with this idea, there is some interesting kind of, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of the uncanny in the book, you know, because yeah. of that strange double mothering. And um, if you'll just indulge me for a moment, um, I'm a big fan of um, Carmen Maria Machado, yeah. who's a short story. You were on a panel with her. Yeah, in yeah, 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 she's great. Yeah, she's so fantastic. Um, but she wrote this incredible thing about the idea of the uncanny and why perhaps women might move towards the idea of the uncanny. And she said, I think there is probably lots of reasons that women write in the uncanny. But one of them is that being a woman is inherently uncanny. Your humanity is liminal. Your body is forfeit. Your mind is doubted as a matter of course. You exist in the periphery, and I think many women writers can't help but respond to that state. And I just wonder about this idea of sort of liminal boundary writing, perhaps, in the book. Do, is that of interest? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the liminal, the liminal, and the in between, and the the, um, the the kind of areas of ambivalence and ambiguity are where the kind of most interesting fiction resides, mm. because I think that it most closely mirrors and reflects our kind of wonders and you know preoccupations with, with, you know, real life. And obviously we, we, we read fiction, we come into fiction for different reasons, but I find that the things that are most, you know, emotionally resonant for me um, dwell in that kind of liminal space. Um, and I, I think what she says is really, really correct. You know, women's bodies are politicized or they're kind of used in particular ways. And, um, you know, th there's a constantly this tension of, of roles for, you know, female bodies, you know, I guess the, the, the most common one would be, you know, ideas of like, uh, ideas of maternity and motherhood and that, that kind of responsibility and, you know, um, performance and, you know, all these social roles that women occupy. And I feel that women 
are expected to be sort of desirable, but they're, they're punished for being desiring creatures a lot of the time. Mm, yeah, which makes the Ponte such a great, uh, you know, like you said, you know, all the things you've said about it. It's just, and, and like the things that come out in the book, this, this idea of, you know, um, I'm desirable, but I'm monstrous. And yeah, it's just so great. Um, can you talk, you've talked a little bit about that one movie you were watching. Were there other sort of cultural touchstones while you were writing the book? Like, were there other books that, you, are there writers that you looked towards um, or Yeah, yeah, like songs uh, Shirley Jackson. I love Shirley, yes. Shirley Jackson so much. Like, um, I guess she's the high priestess of the American Gothic. And I love her so much that I, I snuck in a reference. And yep. so Sue's reading, like, we have always lived in this castle. And so she's like, oh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely Shirley Jackson. I, I love her tremendously. Um, and there's also another um, Korean uh, writer who I've, I've gotten, like, really fixated with recently. She's called Bae Sua. And she wrote this incredible haunting novella. It's, it's, like a, it's like a shot of, like, I don't know, adrenaline. It's, like, however long, 60 pages. And it's, the plot really involves around the delivery of roast chicken. So this, this girl is <laughs> carrying some roast chicken to her terrible boyfriend in an army camp, and she just has to make her way across the city. But it's a lot more riveting than that. <laughs> You're like, will she get the chicken there? And she, it's, it's a lot, there's a lot of kind of, there's a real undertone of menace and, and darkness, and also characters' intentions are not always straightforward. Like, um, in, in this, in Ponty, for example, um, the Misa character, she's, she's in her full sort of like scary monster makeup and this little girl comes to visit the set. She's the, she's the daughter of the director and Misa just like kind of runs out of some trees and just goes like, Bruh! and the little girl gets so scared she runs away and knocks into a pillar and her tooth gets knocked out. That is so cruel, but at the same time, you're like, maybe she was, maybe Amisa was just playing around, you know, maybe she didn't mean any ill, like, you know, I also like the idea of this monster having moments of silliness, like, mm. boo, you know, kind of playing into her own monstrosity. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea so much. I just love it so much. Um, I was also wondering about, I know this is really shallow, but I do, I really wanted to ask about the cover. This is such a beautiful book. Like, it is just so oh. beautiful. And um, it's, yeah, it's beautifully, everything about it is beautiful. Do you know anything about the cover? Yeah, yeah, um, well, we went through, like, uh, several sort of iterations, like um, the design design options with it, um, and, and like publisher Picador were really really great. You know, they they were they really took our kind of like um, ideas into account. Um, the this this cover is actually illustrated by I think he's a Singaporean illustrator. He's based in Canada, but um he yeah he did it, and but it's like an in-house design. And um if you look closely, like you'll see that they're kind of blocks of flats mm. underlaid under the kind of snake-like figure. So I. I do really love it. It's a good cover. It's a fantastic cover. I also think that these look a bit like like uh, like um, croissants. Yeah. Right. Like bread rolls, which I, I love food. So like, it's <laughs> yeah. It's a Danish maybe. Yes, the Danish. Yes, that's it. it. A Danish. That's a Danish. Yeah. There's a lot of Danish action at this festival. It's been quite good. <laughs> <laughs> you like a Danish? Um, actually, can we talk about food in the book? Yeah. Like, I, sure. Like, I mean, there's. There's quite a few women who are not eating, and yeah. then there's food. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, it, I think, the, you know, back to the thing about women and women and having like sort of liminal sort of existences, liminal bodies, I think that there's so much pressure, particularly in Singapore, they're really sort of unrealistic beauty standards, which I feel are very, very punishing. Like, you know, you see it reflected everywhere in media. Um, these really, really kind of rail thin ladies 
very, very delicate, but at the same time, Singapore is you know, really known for its very, very hearty eating culture. So you can find like amazing food for like next to nothing. Mm. So we're a nation of eaters, and the way how you identify a Singaporean is basically the person like who's like going, go, who knows where the food is. That's a very Singaporean trait, like good food. Um, but at the same time, there's this, I think, immense pressure to be like, to, to look a certain way, to conform to this idea of kind of dainty femininity. So I think that it's very interesting considering um, women's relationships to food and to diet. I mean, in, in recent years, there's been this whole fixation on wellness, right? Like, you know, look at this quinoa, like whatever, quinoa, like a quinoa lasagna. It's like, that's not a lasagna. <laughs> it's just quinoa like, made to look a bit like lasagna. Like, cogetti spaghetti is like the bane of my life. Like, it's, why is it? Don't call it spaghetti. That's really insulting to spaghetti. It's basically a courgette that's been put through this torture machine, and it's like this, this sad courgette. And also, if you do have it with, with mints, I mean, I, I'm digressing, but if you do have it with mints, the courgette like gives up and it's like, it just releases all this liquid. So you just have this like mints that's drowning. It's just terrible. But anyway, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if anyone is a fan of courgette. <laughs> Don't quote me on that, no. But, um, yeah, but basically, like, food plays so much of a part of the kind of rhythms of everyday existence. And um, one of the characters really has issues with food. But I, I hope that I handled it kind of in a, in a sensitive way, that, that it's not really about trying to conform to particular beauty ideals, but about control in, a, in a, what feels like an uncontrollable world. Mm. So if, if, if the only thing you can control is what you, what you take in, then that's some way of her kind of feeling like she has some aut autonomy or some agency when she really, you know, feels powerless. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I was I did want to ask you another question, which is kind of on a slight tangent, but ties into this idea of Singapore. Um, you know, like I think that um, in New Zealand we have an idea of Singapore and the Singapore experience, perhaps, and. One thing this book does incredibly well, as I said before, is that it really captures this diversity of experience. Like we have um, people coming from away to live in Singapore, we have indigenous Singapore. Um, can you talk a little bit, how do you capture, when something isn't your experience, how do you capture it in writing, do you think? Mm, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think I always do consider my, my sort of privileges, like um, as a sort of Chinese Singaporean, I never felt like a minority growing up until I moved to England. And then that made me so much more attentive to, to the fact that I'd gone to school with, with girls who were from, you know, basically Singaporean, um, Singaporeans are sort of majority Chinese, but also comprised of like, you know, in, you know Singaporean Indians, Singaporean Malays, uh, Singaporean Eurasians. Um, so like, it made me really consider and, and kind of have the lived experience of, you know, being sort of a minority and being read a particular way. Um, I guess to me, I. I always wanted to kind of bear that in mind that like say if this is a story it's just one part of you know the whole sort of entire myriad of experiences that that people have that are really valid and there's so many stories like that 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 you know Singapore contains the Singaporean mm. experience is not one thing it's what Chimamanda Adichie said there's no one story but I think that it's very easy to kind of assume that um, you know with how sort of popular culture plays out you know People like kind of tweetable things. People like to encapsulate things in very clickbaity, kind of tidy ways, and mm -hmm. that that does not reflect the kind of complexity in a really good way of of experience and and Singapore itself. Mm. I was thinking that a lot. Um, I was I was thinking um, 
like with Crazy Rich Asians coming oh, out. Yeah. It, hopefully it'll come here. I, I, yeah. It could be interesting, but um, you know, this first kind of movie that, um, well, is it first? Who knows? But you know, this movie that, um, you know, and there was some incredible talk around that about oh, God, how yeah. you, you know, like how there will be a different experience for someone from Singapore watching that movie compared with maybe someone who is from the West watching the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, have you seen the trailer? Has anyone seen the trailer? I have. Oh, yeah, yep, yeah, we've got some nods. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> just this like really bombastic, glitzy trailer that, you know, it's kind of like the Great Gatsby, uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio version <laughs> mixed with like every sort of big budget rom-com that you've ever seen. So obviously the Singapore in there is not reflective of reality. It's kind of you know, it's, it's been CGI'd or it's been varnished. Everything is like these pops of brilliant candy color. Everyone's really beautiful, but very, very, very problematically, everyone is kind of like, you know, Chinese. Like, you're kind of like, hello, there's so many other kind of races. Like, Singapore is very diverse. So I think that was the main issue that people had with, with the trailer. Mm. And also everyone speaks in kind of American, like Hollywood, Hollywood English. But I mean, to that quibble, I would, I would reply and say, you know, just take, you know, progress is one step at a time. This has been financed by a massive Hollywood sort of studio full of like kind of particular executives or whatever, but they, they've made this kind of quite radical decision to kind of make this summer blockbuster full of Asian faces. Mm. So I think like take that for what it is. It's not supposed to be this gritty, realist, <laughs> you know, Herzog type documentary about Singapore, in which case then, yeah, it's terrible, but <laughs> it's meant to be like a light, fr frothy rom-com, and also like, I think people should reserve their judgment until they see the whole thing. Hmm. I'm frankly not that interested in watching it, unless it's on a plane, then I'll watch it and cry. It does seem like a perfect <laughs> plane crying movie, it seems I cry at everything on planes. Yeah, it's the atmosphere. Yeah. No, literally, literally, yeah. Yeah, it's like I'm up in the air. Oh, yeah. Um, we have some time for questions, and there are going to be some roving mics. I promised I would give them more um, um, warning than that. So, is there anyone? And if you could just wait um, until you have a microphone in your hand to ask your question, and um, yeah, that'd be great. So, does anyone have a question that they would like to ask? Oh, there's one just down the front here. Thank you. Um, there's a microphone coming. I could be a good rugby commentator. There's a <laughs> microphone coming. <laughs> you talk about going to the UK and doing your creative writing MA there. Did you have to go away in order to be able to see Singapore in its reality? If you'd stayed in Singapore, do you think you would have written a similar book? That's a really good question. I, I don't know, I, I'm constantly preoccupied with, with, you know, kind of sliding doors type like quandaries like that, you know. In, in, one, in one version of reality, I go away and then I write this book. In, in another version of reality, maybe I stay and I write a book, I don't know, set at a hospital <laughs> about like n nurses or something, or maybe I, I stay in Singapore and I write a book about someone that goes away <laughs> and then writes a book about Singapore. <laughs> I think that's what would happen. <laughs> yeah. That is a great, I, I would like that story as well. That would be very cool. Maybe. Does anyone else have any questions? Oh, there's one over there. The microphone's coming. <laughs> Gonna practice. I think there's a future for me. <laughs> Hi, I grew up in Australia, so I'm quite conscious of the depiction of Asian women in Western literature. I was wondering, growing up in Singapore, like reading Singaporean literature, 
and the depictions of Asian women in that, would you find that was more nuanced and contrast about what you read when you left, like Western literature? Oh, yeah, yeah, massively, yeah. I mean, I, I have, like, yeah, I have so much to say about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's why representation and, like, writers writing from, from their own experience, like, their lived experience is so kind of essential because I felt like that, you know, in terms of my syllabus at school, like, it, it still needs to be decolonized to an extent in, in Singapore and that, you know, they, they taught us a lot of kind of, you know, the canon of, like, you know, English male writers, and it was very, very difficult um, growing up not seeing my experience or like the experience of people around me um, that closely reflected. So you'd have to kind of always use a leap of imagination. But I think that right now the Singaporean literary scene is really sort of burgeoning and there, there are all kinds of genres. So like there's a huge sort of speculative, you know, speculative writers are coming up. And I, I guess someone could kind of form a connection with that, with like, you know, how Singapore is, this sort of technocratic kind of like space, you know, very few, very, very advanced kind of um, cosmopolitan society with people kind of imagining futures. Um, but also, there's a lot of wonderful sort of realist fiction, um, particularly in, in the realm of short stories, where, yeah, the, the female characters are, are very nuanced. They're, they're more than just sort of submissive, you know, like concubine ladies. Like, you know, no, none of that, none of that. <laughs> is there, I, I hate being put on the spot like this, but would you, is, is there an author that you would recommend? Yeah, um, I really love this short story writer called Dave Chua, he's great. And actually, um, there's another, another um, short, she's another like novelist called Hui, Tan Hui Hui. Um, she's really funny and very acerbic. And she wrote um, a, like a trilogy, like a three novels sort of back in the early 2000s, but I think that she's actually quite forward thinking, quite sharp. Um, she kind of speaks to the contemporary moment and um, I enjoyed Cheryl Liu-Dian Tan's novel, Sarang Party Girls. I thought that was, I think that's received sort of mixed receptions. It's written entirely in Singlish, which is like um, the kind of vernacular in, in Singapore. So like an uh, example of Singlish would be like, Neola, how can, which is, <laughs> that's, that's a Singaporean <laughs> phrase. A whole book is written in, in, in that vernacular, which I thought was really sort of daring linguistic and artistic choice, but I felt that it worked really well. It was entertaining, but also very, very kind of, um, Kind of sharp and and you know pretty pretty brave in, it, in in the kind of kinds of you know statements that it made about Singaporean society, um, the pa patriarchal roles in society, like how how women you know in S Singapore are treated. I, I thought that was good. Yeah. Awesome. That yeah. sounds great. Thank you for that. Do we have any more questions? Oh, there's one just here and one there. Where shall we go first? Here come the microphones. Love these booths so much. Yeah, they look so lovely. Or we could be on a ship. <gasps> the Titanic. No, not the oh. Titanic. No, 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 no. <laughs> nice ship. Yeah, uh, nice ship. <laughs> do you think you will ever return to Singapore to live, or do you wish to return to Singapore to live? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how. I, I feel like my feelings change every, like, seven years. So <laughs> ask me in seven years, and... Maybe I'll already be in Singapore by then. <laughs> I don't know, perhaps. Yeah, I, I kind of go through cycles of like intense homesickness. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Hello. Um, I think something that New Zealanders struggle with is the sense of like national identity because we're sort of like a newer country and it's changing quite a lot and the demographics are changing a lot. And I think Singapore in some ways has those similar changes. So do you think Singaporeans have a stronger sense of national identity because it also has, I guess it has to accommodate all the different cultures. And yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, I think that actually like national identity is something that's you know promoted quite strongly um, in, in like you know the syllabus and stuff. So when we're in school, that they're, they're kind of you know we have a, a module, a class like you know you know on like sort of developing this sort of sense of you know civic duty. Um, so I think it's it's quite a contentious sort of issue in that I, I think it differs from person to person in terms of like patriotism. Like the, there was a kind of government campaign where they were like you know, they were saying like, you know, you're a stayer or a quitter. If you leave, you're a quitter. So I'm, it's not very nice being called a quitter. <laughs> and I don't think that we necessarily need to kind of subscribe to these factional ways of thinking, like, you know, one way or another. I think national identity, you know, it comes in peaks and trusts. It's like one of those things. It's almost like a kind of religious fervor. I suppose if you, you know, if you have a particular national holiday, then you feel it more or if you have a kind of kinship, that, that kind of instant kinship that you have with someone that's grown up in the same environment, for example, that understands the food or the references, or something as simple as that. Um, I think for Singapore, it's definitely the eating culture mm. is, is the thing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yum. Um, we have time for one more question. These have been fantastic questions. Yeah. <laughs> you are awesome. Oh, here comes another fantastic question. We're going to finish with a No pressure. Is this tent always here? No, they, it folds down. It, folds it takes like three days. Andrew was just saying they're going to take it down. But what? it rained when they were putting it up, so oh. not so good. Freaky, eh? Wow. I walked in here. The last time I was in it was in Wellington, and I walked in and I thought I was back in Wellington. Oh. Sorry, your question. <laughs> Is there a novel for you to write about the Asian woman's experience living in London? Well, mm. yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't. I can't like give it away. No. Um, but yeah, I'm very, very much interested in what it's like to kind of be like a, an Asian woman in the world, particularly in, in an environment where yeah, you, you're kind of like you know foreign or a minority, and how Asian women get read um, in in different contexts. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, there's a lot of Another fascination of mine is doubling and, and like kind of being mistaken for the only other Asian person. Because <laughs> it's this erosion of individuality, like um, like some like particularly in like you know if it, I'm not like no, but you know particularly in, like, if it's like a literary event where you, you know you've written a book, so it's kind of like hey it's you know I'm, I'm a person, <laughs> but they just like mistake you for someone else completely. You're just like that's not mm, it's not cool, but you know that that will find its way into yeah. Everything is research, so it's, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that question. It's a great, I love that question. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for being Thank here. Thank you. We are going to draw this event to a close, and I am going to tell you some excellent news. Um, I'm just going to find this excellent news down here on this piece of paper. So, um, Charlene will be signing books at the, um, at the signing table, which is inside the Altea Centre. So what we're going to do is exit the tent, you go up the stairs, through the box office, <laughs> and across the foyer, um, and it says left or right to be confirmed. I have not had that oh. confirmed. Um, <laughs> sorry, I sucked. I ruined the job. Um, but yeah, we will find you. I would just, I just want to finish by saying this is, it's an exciting book. It's a challenging book, it's an interesting book, it just fires on all cylinders, and it is just one of the most perfectly written novels I've read in a long time, and I just highly recommend it, and it's for sale, and then Charlene can sign it for you. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.